Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of True Crime on Easy Street. Scott didn't speak through the intro today, so we're already off to a great start. I feel like that joke has run its course. <laughs> was it ever a joke? Was it? Ever a joke? I'm not sure if it was funny to anybody except me, but even I am tired of it now. <laughs> well, guys, I'm Katie Givens. I'm not a lawyer. My name is Kelly Turner, and I'm not a doctor. Scott Wright, present and accounted for mediocre journalist. And we're back this week. This story today does not take place in Alabama, does it, Scott? It does not. It takes place in uh, California. Oh, okay. All the way across. Does it have an Alabama tie at all? Uh, hold that thought. Yes. Okay. All right. I'll, I'll see if I can dig one up. How about I hold that thought and I do a shout out? Yeah, go I for do it. Have a shout out. Let's do that. I have a shout out as well, but you go first. Okay. And uh, so this shout out comes to us from Apple Podcast five star review with the words this podcast is amazing i listen to this all the time and it keeps me entertained thank you so much maddie volleyball 14 heck yeah <laughs> is that somebody local do we know who I that is so. i think i think that's a local person and so thank you for listening in fact i think i believe her name is madison and so thank you madison for being a listener and i apologize that mr scott swears as much as he yeah does. i'm gonna try to work on that now that i know we have uh middle-aged school children listening <laughs> I don't want to get I don't want to get phone calls from their parents telling me to watch my language. So I'll try to do better. Yeah, and I just want to let everybody know. Uh, be patient with us. We're we're a little behind on the shout outs, but we will get to you. Yeah, we'll yes. get to everybody. So uh, my shout out today is somebody who has been shouted out before. But there's a story here. You know, we told you guys that we're going to keep up with the Murdoch case yes. in South Carolina. So my uh, my good friend and cousin Mark Gossett called me last week okay. and said, hey, Pam and I oh. are going to hop in the car and drive to South Carolina to visit our son, Cade, who is also a big fan of the show. Yes. He's in law school in Charleston. So Mark had two plans. He's going to go visit his son, he and Pam, and then they're going to drive over to Walterboro, South Carolina, and try to get into the courtroom for the Murdoch murder case. Oh, my oh, God. Wow. That happened on Friday. They actually got they in. They got in. Oh, my goodness. No way. Jury selection in the Murdoch case, just to give you guys out there an update. Jury selection began on Monday. Opening statements were broadcast live on Wednesday on Court TV. And I don't know exactly what happened on Friday when Mark and Pam and Cade were in the courtroom. Mm -hmm. But... I know that they had already started the prosecution's case and they were calling in witnesses, including the uh, first officers to arrive at the scene. And so they showed some of the body cam footage of the crime scene, which apparently was very, very gruesome. Oh, my goodness. I bet. So I'm curious to talk to Mark next week and Kate and Pam and see exactly what they learned. Mm -hmm. But there's your update hey, and tell on them, the Murdoch case. Tell them that if they want to come on the show and give us an update. I would love to do that. Or if Cade, I know Cade's far away, but if he wants yeah. to call in and, and give us an update, we'd love to We'd love to either have you on the show or, or talk with you. You know, we would love that. Yeah. So let I think know. that would anytime. And I've got one more quick shout out. Karen Blair is an employee at Model T Screen Printing. She walked over uh, last week to my office and, and we talked outside for a minute. She has been listening to the show for a long time. Okay. And she loves it. And she just wanted to tell us about some things that she wants us to do the, uh, the boys on the tracks case from Arkansas. And I told her that was on the list. Interesting. Yeah. So she wants us to do that sometime. And I told her we would take a look at that, but she's a big fan of the show. So shout out to Karen Blair today. Thank you for listening, Karen. Yeah.
And I know we do have many other shout outs. We've got we a ton, to but we're going to dole yeah. them out one at a time. Yeah. So it makes us sound super cool. Yes. As opposed to just sort of cool. Right. Which is what we think that we are. Yes. Is that right? That's true. Yes. Katie is rolling her eyes. Mm. <laughs> they just have that perpetual state. I think you're right. Uh, <laughs> speaking of uh, people with that attitude, are you guys ready? Are we doing this? Are you comparing me to the person we're talking about today? Just hang on to that. Mm. Whoopsie daisy. Yeah. Okay. I think so I'm in trouble already and well, we haven't even started. This. Let me say this before we get yeah, started. Sure. Again, once again, Scott's in the big chair. Mm-hmm. This is becoming a habit. You constantly in the big chair. You keep giving me the hard work. I And love, I just keep grabbing a shovel and digging. I love being the dummy. Everywhere. <laughs> Scott has a lot of free time. <laughs> I do have a lot of free time. You guys are otherwise occupied in a lot of different areas. And I've got a lot of free time. I don't mind lugging the load. But if I ever uh, win the lottery and really don't want to do this show anymore, then somebody else is going to have to do the work and I'll be in the in the dummy chair. I don't okay. think you do the show for the money, Scott. <laughs> oh, yeah. We don't really do it for the money, no. do we? Yeah, that's true. No, we don't. So, Scott's in the big seat this week. He's going to give us an interesting story. I have no idea anything about the story. I don't even know the name of the person that the story is about. But it, I do know that yeah. it takes place in California because you just I just told that. you that a minute ago. That's right. I do so, before that. we start this story, let me quickly say one thing. If you're, li- if you're listening out there, this may sound like a case that's not as exciting as some of the other things we've covered on this podcast. It's not the D.B. Cooper case. It's not the Zodiac. It's not the Manson murders. Or the Black Widow. Or the Black Widow or any of the things that we've done in the three years, two plus years we've been doing this podcast. But before we are finished telling you the story of Patricia Hurst, you will have pulled out a tuft of hair. Oh, dear. You will have kicked your dog across your kitchen. Oh. No. My dog's old. Through no fault of his own. It's the level of frustration that you will find as we go through this story. You will have said a new swear word that you did not even know you knew how to pronounce. Okay. You will be disgusted and flabbergasted and amazed and in disbelief when we finish this story. I feel like I'm like at the circus or something. Our hair. This is a circus. Okay. This whole story is a circus. Okay. Our hair is just not safe around you anymore. It you is keep, not because we did that last time. You're gonna down. you're gonna pull your hair again today. I already have a headache. I don't need to pull any more hair. So we begin our story today in the trunk of a car. Oh God. Nineteen year old University of California Berkeley student Patricia Campbell Hurst has just been crammed into the very back of a sixty four Chevy convertible. All five foot three, 110 pounds of her. Have either of you guys, I've got to know this, have either of you ever ridden in the trunk of a car? Because I have. Not my claustrophobic self, no. I, well, I had some buddies in college who thought it would be hilarious. They were both bigger than I. They thought it would be funny to shove me into the trunk of the car on the way to the restaurant where we were going to have lunch. You still call them buddies? Very good friends, despite what I'm about to tell you. So yeah. they shoved me into the trunk of the car. Do I know these people? Uh, no, you don't. <laughs> these are old buddies of mine from... No, 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 no. This is not anybody from here in town. These, okay. these are guys that I know, uh, knew from, and still know from Mobile. Okay. We were all friends in college and I'm still not, are friends today. I'm not, I'm not too keen on these they people They shoved right me now. into the trunk of the car and then proceeded to swerve and dive and speed over the railroad tracks on the way to the restaurant where we were going to have lunch. In all of that confusion, I was able to find one of John's textbooks in the trunk okay. and a flashlight. 
Okay. So when they opened the trunk, I pretended to be reading very calmly. And so we all had a good laugh and they never did it again. But I have ridden in the trunk of a car once. Oh my Lord. But not at your own will. Yeah. Well, neither did Patty. I'm sorry, Patricia. Nobody called Patty. Patty. Except her father. Everyone else called her Patricia, and I will for the rest of this episode. Okay, so that's a, that's a her father-only thing. Yes. Right? Okay, Patricia. Okay. So at the time she was taken, Patricia was dressed this way. Panties, a house coat, nothing else. Her fuzzy blue bedroom slippers had been scattered around the property a few minutes earlier, flung off her feet as she fought with the man who was hauling her in a fireman's carry down the stairs of her apartment complex and into the trunk of the aforementioned Chevrolet. Mm. Her roommate and fiancé, Stephen Weed, age 25, a young professor at Berkeley. That sounds like a professor at Berkeley, yeah. Stephen Weed. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. <laughs> I just, I couldn't uh, he had been hit over the head a few times a few minutes before. After he opened the door of apartment number four, for a young lady who said she needed to use the phone. When Weed answered that knock, the woman and two men burst inside the apartment and demanded that Weed and Hurst get down on the floor and bury their faces in the carpet. The three bandits were heavily armed, well-coordinated, and very determined. Weed was screaming, take my wallet, leave us alone. He thought it was a robbery. Mm -hmm. Patricia was screaming for help. In that initial tussle, one of her blue house shoes came off. When a neighbor stuck his head into the door to see what all the commotion was about, everyone, including the kidnappers, briefly panicked, giving Weed the opportunity to run out the balcony door, ripping the screen off the hinges in the process, and disappearing past his marijuana plants. You were right about the weed thing. He just ran? He ran for help. Okay, he's. Okay. That's his story later. All right. uh, Katie's rolling her eyes. Probably for a good reason. Mm. While weed was hitting the road, Mm -hmm. Patricia Hurst was bound and gagged and blindfolded and and hurried down the stairs where she was tossed into the trunk of the car, as we mentioned. And right about then, off came the other blue bedroom slipper. The police found it right there in the parking lot Mm -hmm. the next morning. I'm not, Later I'm not trying to make light of this, but I'm going to say the marriage is probably off. Stephen Weed and Patricia Hurst never saw or spoke to each other again in their lives. Okay. And they're both alive today, as far that, as I know. They've never spoken or seen each other again since this night. That doesn't shock me. And Patricia, like I said, only dad called her Patty. Mm-hmm. Patricia Hurst had not gone into that trunk quietly. Good for her. She spit out the racquetball that had been shoved into her mouth to keep her quiet and screamed all the way down the stairs. When the uh, neighbors came out to their balcony to investigate the noise, the kidnappers sprayed automatic weapons fire in their direction. Oh, my gosh. The bullets did not hit anyone, but the kidnappers figured correctly that the cops had already been alerted, so they had to go immediately. Obviously, they got away. Or we wouldn't be talking about this. But it was touch and go for a minute without going into the details. They almost didn't get away, but they did. And this was February the 4th, 1974. By the time Patricia calmed down enough to try and begin to get her bearings in that black as night car trunk, it was about 9.30 p.m. Mm -hmm. 
Pacific time. It was a Monday. The temperature was about 40 degrees in Berkeley. Gosh. She was mostly naked, shivering cold, and completely confused about what had just happened. Maybe not completely confused. Because after all, her last name was Hurst. Just a quick history lesson here to explain to those not familiar with the name Hearst why the kidnapping of 19-year-old Patricia in 1974 became the media sensation that it immediately did. Even though she was born in 1954, three years after his passing, Patricia's late grandfather had been one of the most famous and wealthy businessmen in the history of the United States. Try and imagine the media firestorm that would erupt today if Amazon founder Jeff Bezos had a family member kidnapped. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Huge. And held for ransom. That's what we're dealing with. That's who the Hearst family was in the 70s. William Randolph Hearst had died at age 88 in 1951 as the owner and publisher of over two dozen wildly successful newspapers in the country. A generation after his passing, the name Hearst still meant power, wealth, and fame on a grand scale. The chief, as he was known, built the grandest private residence in the United States, San Simeon, on the Pacific coast of California. Today, it is open to the public as a museum, and that guided tour is on my bucket list. I'm going there one day. It's about 200 miles from San Francisco. None of the family lived there. They just opened it to the public. Correct. Well, there's there's a dozen homes on the property, so some of them are able to live there. But the big house, the big castle, with 127 rooms, is open to the public as a museum. It's wild. Hearst had been the inspiration for what many consider to be the greatest American film of all time. The, 19, uh, uh, the 1941 Orson Welles classic, Citizen Kane. That's about William Randolph Hearst. Is it too soon for me to give away? Can I tell everybody what Rosebud meant? I mean, the movie's 82 years old. It was a, a wagon? Was it a wagon? It was a, it was a sled. Okay, you can cut that. It was yeah, a wagon without wheels. All right, so all right, you revealed <clears> No, I wasn't going to, but... Okay, I mean, ahead. it's 82 years old. Either you know what Rosebud meant or you don't. I didn't. Spoiler alert. Yeah, spoiler sorry. alert. Yeah, it's a sled. A sled. Yeah. Got it. If you want to watch the movie, it's available on Amazon Prime. And I don't think it's one of the greatest American movies of all times, but I can see why it's on the list of very good movies. Orson Welles got it right. I didn't just love it myself. I didn't either. I did love the Saturday Night Live spoof of it. Where oh, that sounds interesting. The guys, as he's lay dying, he keeps saying roast beef <laughs> <laughs> on rye. <laughs> That's hilarious. It's great. I got to see that one. So one thing interestingly uh, about Patricia Hearst is that she always refused to watch that film about her famous grandfather. She didn't really care about the family name or the family's history. Unfortunately for her, the members of the Symbionese Liberation Army were extremely interested in the Hearst family and the family name, and Patricia in particular. The who? The Symbionese Liberation Army. We're going to call them the SLA for most of the rest of this episode. Okay, and what does that mean? We're, I'm, I'm, oh, you're getting there. I'm, I'm right there. As far as the SLA was concerned, Patricia was considered uncrowned royalty in this country. And they intended to use the Hearst family's monarch-like popularity 
to suit their own purposes. The SLA was already well-known in the area around Oakland and San Francisco because three months earlier, on November the 6th, 1973, members of the radical group had assassinated Dr. Marcus Foster. He was the superintendent of the Oakland public school system. They put out a press release claiming responsibility for the assassination and announced that they had used cyanide-tipped bullets to kill him at point-blank range. And so everybody really quickly learned who the SLA was okay. because of this act. Why would they? Yeah, I'm going to tell you. And because it doesn't make any sense. And you asked the question at the perfect time. That's the crazy thing about it. And there will be plenty of these as we talk about the Symbionese Liberation Army. The victim who made them famous, Dr. Foster, was black. So his murder did not exactly match up with the stated motivations of the SLA. And that became a huge public relations problem for the SLA. Not to sound trite, I know someone passed away, but that was their driving factor, and it backfired on them. Mm. So to explain briefly, the SLA existed from 1973 to 1975, and at the time was considered a leftist terrorist organization by the FBI and other law enforcement. The information, uh, I'm sorry, the formation of the group began in the late 1960s when students from Berkeley began to go to prisons in California to reach out to help black inmates so that they could reenter society after their terms of incarceration were over. Any decent student of American history knows something about the social unrest that was taking place in this country at that time, right? Young people were rebelling against racial inequality, gender inequality, what they saw as the crooked old men running the government, and in particular, the war in Vietnam. The National Guard was shooting students on campus, for Christ's sake. That was a thing. May the 4th, 1970 at Kent State. These types of events traumatized and radicalized a lot of young people at the time. And ground zero for that movement during those years was on the campus of the University of California, Berkeley. Bill Harris was one of the SLA members that we will talk about a lot more in part two of this series. But he had been a Marine in Vietnam. And he said that it was what he saw and what he was forced to do in Vietnam that made him want to become a radical when he got home that, want, that made him want to join a group like the SLA. Now, regarding the SLA in particular, the word symbionese was a reupholstery of the word symbiosis to come together. And for the SLA's purposes, the word was intended to inspire the unification of all of the predominant left-wing priorities of that time, the anti-racism, the anti-capitalism, the feminism. Mm -hmm. The SLA wanted all races and ethnic groups to come together and fight as one unit against the right-wing conservatives that they felt were running the country into the ground. Are there multiple races represented in this group, or is this a group of white people? It is predominantly a group of white people, mm -hmm. which is another irony yeah, that you will find. Um, and they're wanting everybody to come together, but they're not peaceful. Correct. Yeah, they think, there's gonna, they think so they they're going to start a revolutionary war in this country that's going to overthrow the fascist government. And then everybody's just going to calm down and be peaceful at that point. 
Isn't that what every nut job revolutionary thinks? I mean, yeah, this is a pretty good chance that they think that. So predictably, after the death of Dr. Foster, there was an extreme backlash among the very people that the SLA was trying to inspire. Exactly. After they shot in cold blood the first ever black superintendent of the Oakland City School System. I mean, are you kidding me? Seems counter. No one a lot thought of the, that was a bad idea. Right. A lot of the black community thought that the sign... It was a hate that, crime. That Foster... Well, that Foster that becoming... They well, they thought that Foster becoming the superintendent was a sign of improving progress. racial relations. Yes, yeah. progress. And then they assassinate him... And I'm sure. Well, here's something that's, I was going to get to this later, but it's important to know this now. The person who was in charge of the SLA, he is a black man. And it was his idea to kill Dr. Foster because in his mind, Dr. Foster is a puppet of the right. They believe that his plan to require all high schoolers in Oakland city schools to carry a student ID was a CIA-inspired government conspiracy against the black community, and that's why they killed him. Oh, so this is people against government identification. Yeah. Just like the people who don't think you should have to have an ID to vote. Right. I mean, it's, you know, it's it's that kind of a thing. And and all of this happened on November the 6th, 1973. Wow. This is the first ever aggressive act of the Symbionese Liberation Army. This is what put them on the map. And you've got a gentleman in, in a spot here who's trying to make a difference, who's trying to do things right for the students and for the school system. Yeah. Trying to, he, he was trying to make the school that's system good. safer for the students. For the students. That's, what, that's his job, to think of the students. There was going to be a police presence in the schools, and everybody was going to have a student ID, things that are totally common. Yeah. Yeah. Around today, but in 1973, at least according to the guy that I'm about to tell you about, that was a radical, ridiculous, crazy, government-inspired conspiracy that could not be allowed to stand. I can't get in my school building right now without yeah. my ID hanging around my neck. So the leader of the SLA, like I said, was himself a black man, Donald DeFries. He was 29 years old. His race is significant because of what everything we just talked about. Mm-hmm. And he was the only black member of the SLA, which never involved more than about 10 people at any time. And that's counting the two guys who were in jail for the entirety of this story. I'll get to them in a minute. Okay. The freeze was a convicted thief. He blamed racism for his inability to achieve the American dream. He was one of the inmates who had participated in that outreach program by the Berkeley students at Vacaville which is where Edmund Kemper was destined to spend years and years of his life. But that's another story that we've already told. Look it up. (laughs) Uh, In early March of 1973, DeFries decided that the penal system no longer had anything to offer him. And so he released himself on his own recognizance. That means he escaped. I was about to say, did he, did he bust out? (laughs) He, he walked away from prison and decided he didn't want to go back. And so he didn't. And where else would he go to try and hide except for the place where he thought he might find some sympathy and that was on the campus. Berkeley. At Berkeley. Yeah. So that's where he headed. Okay. And so it was then that the Symbionese Liberation Army began to take shape in the summer months of 1973. Okay. Their first planned operation would be the assassination of Dr. Foster in November. 
Horrible. Senseless. All of that summer, while the SLA planned its first official action, which is what they called it, the rest of the nation watched in shock as the Senate Watergate Committee revealed the extent of President Richard Nixon's corruption. Egypt and Syria attacked Israel in October, and suddenly every driver in America was sitting in their car at a long gas line waiting to pay prices that had suddenly increased fourfold. Why do I feel like this portion of history doesn't get talked about enough? Like these type of social crises, like we talk about the, the civil rights movement and then it's, it's kind of this. I, I don't remember learning about this stuff yeah. in school. Well, I, I, when I was in school, we never got this far. Uh, we were lucky. I remember being lucky in, in high school. If we were going to do uh, U.S. history, mm-hmm. if we ever got to, to Vietnam, mm-hmm. I always wanted to learn about Vietnam because my dad had been in Vietnam. Right. Mm-hmm. And we never got that far. So anything after the 50s. That's what I'm saying, yeah. I never got that far. I, I was in college before I learned about what happened in this country in the last 50 years during yeah, my yeah. lifetime because I didn't learn it anywhere. Well, and you, you almost have to take an advanced history yeah. course mm-hmm. or a more specific history course yeah. to even get you know, to this. I think that's a terrible oversight. I do too. Mm-hmm. One of those classes, you know, I talked when we did Kate uh, Ragsdale. Mm-hmm. There was that photograph of her and a history professor, and he had been one of my history professors. And one of the classes that I took with him was the history of the world since 1945. That was the title of the class. Oh, wow. And I learned mm-hmm. all of that stuff for and, the very first time in college. Stuff, this was talked about. Too, sure it was. About of course today. it was. Wow. It really should be a part of your core. So much has happened in yeah. that amount of time. And it's just, you know. I, it was I, a crazy time and people yeah. don't know that. Yeah. And so then, when you hear about D.B. Cooper or Patty Hearst or the Zodiac, you don't realize what a crazy. What was going on around it. Nation around it was. Yeah. Yeah. And at it the really, time. it puts things that are happening now in perspective too. It makes you think maybe the world isn't on fire. Yeah. It's, it, if it yes. is, it's always been burning. Mm-hmm, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. So Jeffrey Tubin, uh, he's the guy who wrote the 2016 book, American Heiress, the wild saga of the kidnapping, crimes, and trial of Patty Hearst. He called what was happening in the country in the mid-70s, quote, a nationwide nervous breakdown. Another historian of the period said that during this time, quote, America suffered more wounds to its ideal of itself than at just about any other time in its history. And I mean, that's true, but that's, that's true for every generation. Every generation thinks that the world is coming apart. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yes. Everybody does. I think especially if you get to a certain age. Well, one day thinking, somebody's going to be right. You start thinking, you know, the world is changing. Things are changing. This is, people don't like change. It's, it's a hell in a handbasket. Yep. Yeah. You're right. So the month after the energy crisis began in October, that's when Dr. Foster was gunned down by DeFreeze and five other members of the SLA. The next day, a written statement was mailed to a Berkeley radio station in which the SLA claimed responsibility for the attack. And immediately, like I mentioned, the community was up in arms over the murder of a prominent black leader by a radical leftist group that claimed to be fighting against, among other things, racism. Good gosh. So DeFreeze quickly decided that the next defiant act by the SLA would not be a murder. It would be a kidnapping. So now they kidnap a white lady. 
That's the plan. Well, they don't know who they're going to kidnap yet. Oh, okay. But they just know they're not going to murder anybody else. They're going to kidnap someone. A solid plan. You're going in the right direction. They're working on a plan. And then on January the 10th of 1974, their plan starts to materialize before their very eyes because the two idiots that I mentioned earlier that are going to spend most of this story in jail, all of this story in jail, they are pulled over during a routine traffic stop by a police officer who sees a box of SLA leaflets in the back of the van. And the SLA logo was very distinctive and very recognizable at the time. It was a seven-headed cobra, which is one of the worst drawings I've ever seen. It's horrible. It doesn't look like anything. But everybody knew what it was because of all the the publicity about Mm -hmm. the murder of Dr. Foster. So this cop knew what it was when he saw it. There was a short firefight between the cop and the two guys in the Volkswagen van before they were arrested, taken to the police station, and eventually charged with the murder of Dr. Foster because one of them had the gun in his belt. It would come out years later that he did not, he was not the person who pulled the trigger that killed Dr. Foster, mm-hmm. but he had the gun in his possession. And he is still in jail today, as far as I know, for the murder of Dr. Foster. Oh, God. Yeah. He's an old man now. This is a terrible drawing. It's a terrible logo, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. They they needed a graphic designer yeah, on that. And that's the good version. Hmm. Imagine what it looked like mimeographed. We will um <laughs> we will put like a picture of this on our Instagram. Yeah. What is mimeographed? Oh Lord, do we have to do this? It's what it was before there was electric copy machines. Mm-hmm. It was, a, it was a manual copy machine. You put a piece of paper on a cylinder and poured ink somewhere and put paper somewhere and you spun a, a, a handle and it printed copies of this thing. Kelly, do you remember mimeographed sheets? Kelly is not as old as you. Quit no. putting her with you. Oh, yeah. Anyway, <laughs> it, 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 it smelled of this ink, which had a chemical smell to it. When I was a kid and you got, if everybody had to take a test, Mm-hmm. And the teacher made 30 copies of this test to hand out to everyone in the room. You got a mimeographed copy and it smelled, it was enough to get you high. That's probably the reason why I'm drawn to illegal narcotics to this day is because mimeographed pieces of paper that were handed to me when I was in first grade. Allegedly. Allegedly. I'm sorry I asked. I've just never heard that word before until today. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I'll look it up. It's the thing. I swear. So the other members, after these two are arrested and hauled into jail, the other members of the SLA immediately realized that they had reached the point of no return. They were all going to be tied to the murder of Dr. Foster. They couldn't, they couldn't hold jobs anymore. They couldn't live in, they couldn't interact with the rest, of, uh, the rest of society. They had to break off and go into hiding and go underground. They all did. Because the only way that this ends for them is they're either arrested or they are killed. Mm. And that will prove to be the point. I mean, that's the fact when we get to the bottom of this. So the SLA's kidnapping plan was, had just been an outline up to that point. But now they start to realize we need to capture somebody and use them as a negotiating tool to get our guys out of jail. I mean, I just, okay. That's the plan. I just don't think like these folks. So DeFreeze assumes a more military style leadership of the SLA at this point. Uh, For one example, 
he insisted that the members of the group begin to use code names instead of their real names mm-hmm. to learn to, to to discuss things with each other and to communicate with each other. I'm going to skip the story of the code names. Watch the documentary if you want, Katie. You've seen some of it. Mm-hmm. Because it's very confusing. We don't want to, there's no sense talking. I'm not even going to mention most of these names until we get to the second episode because it, most of them aren't germane to the story. Yeah, we can look that Not up. the way we're telling it. The one I will tell you is that DeFreeze began referring to himself as SINQ, C-I-N-Q-U-E, SINQ, or SIN for short. And he took that name from the African chief who led the slave revolt aboard the ship Amistad in 1839. He thinks highly of himself. I was just about to say the same thing. Like, I don't think y'all are the same. Yeah. So the SLA's next commitment to action would be the capture of someone famous or important. They weren't exactly sure who it was going to be yet. And they would be followed by a demand that the authorities release the two jailed comrades of theirs and ensure their safe passage to Cuba in return for the safe return of the kidnap victim. It turns out that that future kidnap victim unknowingly revealed herself to the SLA in her engagement announcement, which ran in the pages of the San Francisco Examiner, a Hearst-owned newspaper, on December the 19th, 1973, and her name was Patricia Campbell Hearst. We will be right back after a word from our sponsors. This episode of True Crime on Easy Street is brought to you by the Chamber of Cherokee County, and they would like to remind you to shop local. Put your money into those local businesses that help you, your clubs, your ball teams, your organizations, all of your sales. They help you, so help them shop local. Coming up this week at Easy Street, Wednesday night is game night, and the game of the week is Family Feud. Thursday night is Trivia. Friday night, live band karaoke. Saturday night, we've got Rosewood Grips. And then next week on Tuesday, it's bingo. We'll see you there. Mediocre journalists rejoice. I am here, and my name is Scott Wright, and I'm the editor of the Post-Herald here in Cherokee County. And if you don't have a subscription, let me tell you the easiest way that you can imagine to get one. Call 927 4476. The area code is 256. And if you live here in Cherokee County, you can get a subscription for as little as 20 bucks a year. We are one of the proud sponsors of this podcast, True Crime on Easy Street. I hope you guys read the paper every week. Kelly? I do. Uh huh. Bullshit. Can I say that in an ad? Katie, how about you? I mean, it's your ad. I guess you can do what you want. I guess I can do what I want. I'm paying 20 bucks a month. And if you would like to advertise with us as well, it's only 20 bucks. In the meantime, if you want to subscribe to the Post Herald, also only 20 bucks a month. Do that by calling 256-927-4476. Thank you so much to the Post-Herald for being a sponsor. I'm not sure you mean that, but it is appreciated. Thank you so much to our sponsors. And now we're back to the show. Scott, where do we go from here? Okay, so we have talked about who Patricia Hurst was, is, and who the Seminese Liberation Army was and about that radical group's motivation for her kidnapping. We have already told you the details about how the kidnapping took place. Yes. The story of what happened over the next 56 days gets a little complicated. There are multiple explanations for what happened to Patricia Hurst between the time she was kidnapped on February the 4th and when she helped the SLA rob a bank while aiming an automatic rifle and shouting orders at bank customers 
on April the 15th. Time out. Time out. Time out. Give me those dates again. She was kidnapped. It's eight weeks. She was kidnapped. On On February the 4th. She helped them rob a bank on April the 15th. It's eight weeks to the day. And I assume you're going to clear this up. As well as I can. Surviving SLA members insisted in the years after the events took place that Patricia Hurst was treated with civility and was never forced to have relations with any member of the group. Well, that escalated. Yeah. She was treated humanely as a prisoner of war, according to the Geneva Convention, according to the SLA. A prisoner of war? Which, that was the way that they, the documentary, uh, the, the, the document that explained her Kidnapping said that she had been arrested. They had performed an arrest warrant against Patricia Campbell Hurst. In their mind, they were a legitimate military organization, and so they were going to abide by the rules of the Geneva Convention and treat her accordingly, which meant to treat her civilly, with civility, and to not torture her or subject her to anything that would endanger her mental health. Other than kidnapping her and throwing her in her trunk. Except for that. Okay. Uh, She was fed and clothed and cared for, and at one point was even offered the opportunity to walk out the door and go home. But she insisted on staying to fight with the SLA. That's the other members of the SLA's version of the story. Patricia Hurst, on the other hand, in her 1982 book, Every Secret Thing, described her life as a living nightmare over those eight weeks. Patricia claimed she was tortured, raped, beaten, and brainwashed. Brainwashed into fearing for her life at the hands of law enforcement, the Freeze had warned her that police would shoot her on sight as a criminal if she ever tried to flee the SLA. These are, this is her version of events. Especially, according to Patricia, after the SLA forced her to participate in said bank robbery. Get online. Watch the security footage from the Hibernia Bank heist and make up your own mind. Scott, you've watched that. If I've learned anything from 25 years as a mediocre journalist, it is that when I hear two sides of a story that do not match up, the truth is somewhere in the middle. There's a third. Okay, so what what does this video look like? It looks like she was a willing participant in the Hibernia Bank robbery. Looks like she's holding a huge... She's holding an M1 carbine. Yeah, rifle. Screaming at... Mm-hmm. The uh, the customers in the bank. Mm-hmm. Everybody get down on the floor, or I will shoot your mf head off. No one's holding a gun at her to hold a gun. At That's what people. she claimed later. She said that she was there under duress. That they had told her, "Hey, we're going to keep our guns trained towards you. If you screw anything up, we will drop you like we would anybody else." Mm-hmm. That's the story that she tells yeah. later. It doesn't really look like that, but who knows? I mean, it's hard they, to see what's going did on. Did they have guns too? Everybody. Yeah. In the yeah, so all of the robbers. Had I mean, guns. that's plausible. It, it is. is. It is. A, if she decided, another reason for the yeah. confusion. Yeah, it's. She, I'm not. It's hard to pick a side on this. It really. At least for a little while. Well, I know what side I'm picking right now. Yeah. I mean, it may change, but well, you know, whatever. So I mean, look, we all agree that Patricia Hurst was 19, naive, at an impressionable age. Yeah, absolutely. 100. But I remember. One hundred percent. I remember a statement by one of the the, uh, psychiatrists in one of the documentaries I watched about the Hearst kidnapping, and she described Patricia Hearst as being like water. And here's the exact quote. She said, 
that girl takes the shape of whatever glass she is poured into. Yeah. By the end of this, that'll make a lot more sense. And that will seem like a common denominator as we go through this story for sure. Okay. She is very adaptable to her surroundings. Okay. So was Patricia Hearst a brainwashed lemming who was operating on cruise control out of sheer fright? Or had she become a loyal, willing participant in the radical, illegal activities committed by the left-wing terrorist group known as the SLA? That debate continues to this day. But I don't really see that as two completely different sides. I mean, couldn't some of that all be true? Well, that's going to be her defense strategy when she gets into court. But Katie's going to tell us about that next week. All right. But that's a very uh, riveting, I think, part of the story that, that Katie's going to mop up at the end. Okay. All right. Now, personally, based on what I've read and what I've seen, I don't believe anyone in the SLA had the knowledge or the training to intentionally brainwash anyone. They weren't that organized. Okay. DeFreeze was 30 years old by then, but the rest of these soldiers were just, they were kids who had been swept up in the counterculture movement and the sense of helplessness that existed among many young Americans at the time, and it was the perception that their country was slipping away from them. The SLA wanted to shock the nation up in the rules that everybody was supposed to live by, but they really had no long-term goals. They had no coherent agenda. They were not in any way, shape, or form professional soldiers. In the early days of Patricia's kidnapping, she was kept blindfolded in a closet, but that didn't last long. Otherwise, she was unharmed, adequately cared for. These guys didn't have a plan to brainwash her that I can ascertain at all. She was kept in a closet. Yeah. And we're supposed to give them kudos for feeding her and clothing That's her. Yeah, sure. I mean... Okay. Geneva Convention. That's their argument. And it's three days before they reach out to anybody and tell... How about civil rights? Well, An individual's really, civil, civil rights. They're not Is worried that, about that. That's not part of the... Okay. No. Right, whatever. Um, it's three days before the SLA reaches out, publicizes their ransom demand, a communique to use SLA parlance to a local radio station. And so the unfunny comedy of errors that was the kidnapping of Patricia Hearst began in earnest because the ransom demand, first of all, contained no demand for ransom. Wait, what? Does it contain a demand? It arrived two days late as well because it got lost in the mail. (laughs) I'm sorry. No, no. So it arrived after the demand was supposed to have been met. No, it just it arrived. It took them I mean, two days. There's the, the SLA is sitting around the radio in their safe house, going, "Why aren't they talking about it on the radio? We sent it two days ago. Now, do this by Thursday. It got it lost in the mail. Arrive on yeah. until Saturday. So the statement when it finally arrived threatened Patricia with bodily harm, but only if any effort was made to locate and rescue her. Leave her, leave us alone, and she will be unharmed. Don't in look the, for us in her closet. There was no mention of a swap for the two arrested SLA members. The only request or the only demand was that it be printed in the local newspapers and sent to the local TV stations. They wanted press coverage. Patricia's father, Randolph Hearst, the son of William Randolph Hearst, was the publisher of the San Francisco Examiner at the time, and he complied with the request. So his paper ran the statement the day after it was received, as did most of the other papers in the area. And then finally, a few days later, 
the SLA got around to making its first demand of the Hearst family, something that they said would be considered a gesture of good faith before they began proper negotiations about how to get Patricia home. But no ransom money. That's right. Okay. Yeah. And here's something to know. From the millionaires. Correct. Months before the SLA had tinkered around with the idea of stealing a truckload of groceries and distributing the food to the poor in the area. Well, that's nice of them. So this previously discarded idea was reused as an inspiration. Why not have the Hearsts pay to send a bunch of food to the poor? That will be your goodwill gesture. And then after you do this, we will begin our negotiations with you to get Patricia home. Okay. So on February the 12th, the first of what would become many tape recordings of Patricia Hurst's voice arrived at Berkeley radio station KPFA. In that recording, Patricia, for the first time since her kidnapping eight days earlier, finally confirmed that she was okay. And her words were, Mom, Dad, I'm okay. And that's how Patricia... Have you ever heard Patricia Hurst talk? No. Get online, watch one of these videos, listen to it. She has this, Jeffrey Tubin called it a sort of a slack jaw, I'm sorry, a lock jaw monotone. Like she's always, she's perpetually disinterested in everything. Like she's going to roll her eyes at any moment at the banality of whatever you might say. You have a teenage daughter. You know what I'm talking about. It's like that. <laughs> yes. Just yes, everything is ridiculous and idiotic and beneath her. That was how Patricia Hurst talked on all of these audio tapes. Yeah, I mean that's what you sounded like when you were do, when you were doing the impression. Mom, Dad, I'm okay. That's it. And and is she always? Is that just the way she talks, or is that the way she is? I think it's both. Okay, so so the the it matches. Yeah, the way she sounds matches how she really. Yeah, feels. I mean, uh, Mom and Dad hear that and go, yeah, "That's Patty. She's fine." Okay, sounds normal to me. A second tape also arrived that day, and it contained uh, DeFreeze's voice, in which he referred to himself in grandiose terms as, quote, the General Field Marshal in the United Federated Forces of the Symbionese Liberation Army. Remember, the SLA only has 10 members, and two of them are incarcerated. Of course, by now, the media is all over this case. The front yard of the Hearst Mansion in a very posh upscale area of San Francisco is overrun with news vans and TV cameras and talking heads for weeks and weeks. The evening news programs of the three TV networks in existence at the time, Katie, well, I'll explain that to you later, <laughs> uh, led their nightly broadcasts with the latest updates in the Hearst kidnapping. But let's not us make the same mistake that those mediocre news hounds made day after day for weeks and weeks and weeks back then. Let's not drown in the useless details of this story. I mean, we could spend hours talking about that food giveaway and Randy Hurst's press conferences from the front porch of his house, all of the back and forth conversations that took place in the SLA safe house in the eight weeks between Patricia Hurst's arrest, as the SLA called it, and the Hibernia bank robbery. But instead, let's just say that the food giveaway was a disaster that led to riots in the streets. How does giving away food lead to 
you'll have to go online and watch the video, but I promise you it got out of hand. Ridiculously out of hand. They were turning over vans and throwing food in the air. Bands, bands of children were robbing little old ladies of the ham and head of lettuce they had walked away with under their arm. It was a, sh- it was, it was a shit show. In Oakland. Okay. Live on television. Live on television. Yeah. Uh, the ransom demands, they started to sort of peter out. That really didn't become an area that the SLA was focused on anymore after a bit. And the voice recordings of Patricia Hearst on tape began to sound more and more sympathetic to the radical causes of her captors. On day 34 of the kidnapping, after Randy Hearst declined a demand from the SLA to commit an additional $4 million to another round of feeding the poor in California, he just, at that point, announced the whole matter was, quote, out of my hands. Patricia's voice after that on tape the next day questioned her father's commitment to her safe return and criticized her mother's press conference wardrobe decisions. Tell mom to get out of that black dress. That's not helping anything, she said. On day 59... Patricia announced in another audio tape that she had chosen to join her new friends by becoming a gun-wielding member of the SLA. Patricia ended that recording with the standard SLA sign-off, which is, quote, death to the fascist insect that preys upon the life of the people, unquote. To me, though, these recordings, I mean, yeah, they could be her changing or, or changing her views, but they could still be coerced. Well, that's certainly going to be the argument that she makes when she finds herself in front of a judge and jury I a mean, couple I, of years later. I'm just later. not ready to um All right. Good. Go I'm there. glad that you're not familiar with this case. I would I, I think Katie and I both want to know how what you feel about this. When we get to the courtroom, I want to know what, if you think she's guilty or not because that is the matter at hand. Okay. When we get to that point. So I'm very curious about so just yeah, just be you be the juror who has not gotten any uh, okay. previous information about this okay. case. That's you today. Let me ask you this. Do I get to hear from other members of this yes. band of whatevers? This band of revolutionaries. Okay. You do indeed. All right. So it was about at that moment in time that the SLA, that is now 11 members strong, if you believe the SLA members that say Patricia joined willingly. They began to run low on cash and decided that they needed to rob a bank. One of the most crucial details in the final plan for this robbery was that the bank contained a security camera so that the SLA could show off its newest member. So they wanted people to be able to see oh, yeah. Patricia here at this We've bank. converted this rich person into a revolutionary. Everybody look. So on day 71 of the Hearst kidnapping, Patricia and four of her new friends walked into the branch of Hibernia Bank located in the sleepy Sunset District of San Francisco, armed and dangerous. The security camera on the wall took 400 photos of the crime at four pictures per second. This because the technology of videotape did not yet exist. Wild. Yeah, I knew you'd get a kick out of that. Mm. So gun-toting, uh, gun-toting SLA soldier Patricia Hurst 
was in just about every one of those 400 photos. She was right in the middle. It's almost like they knew where to put her. Mm -hmm. After a successful escape, the SLA robbery team drove back to their safe house in San Francisco and counted their take, which was $10,660. How much is that today? Uh, 50 grand-ish. As if the recent return of the Zodiac Killer wasn't enough for the people of San Francisco to absorb. Now the Symbionese Liberation Army, aided by their new recruit celebrity outlaw Patricia Hurst, was robbing banks in town. You guys remember the Dirty Harry movies with Clint Eastwood? They were all set in San Francisco. Made in the 70s. Which, at the time, was ground zero for crime in this country. If you thought about crime, I mean, maybe today you think about Chicago, right? Mm -hmm. Back then in the 70s, you said crime. People thought about San Francisco. And if you want to see the, uh, or you want to hear our three-part series about the Zodiac, that's season two, episodes 10, 11, and 12 from March of 2022. That's available at truecrimeoneasystreet.com. Shameless plug. Give it a listen. Nobody saw that coming, right? <laughs> they didn't have time to skip over it. <clears throat> Our loyal listeners. A few days after the bank robbery, another audio message from the SLA arrived. In it, Patricia Hurst, using her new code name, Tanya, flaunted the SLA's foolproof planning of the bank robbery and poked fun at the FBI's fumbling attempts to locate them all. She called any notion that she had been brainwashed into assisting in the robbery, quote, ridiculous to the point of being beyond belief. Suddenly, in the eyes of the FBI, Patricia Hearst had become a wanted criminal, no different from the eight other marching members of the Symbionese Liberation Army. She had quite literally talked herself onto the FBI's most wanted list. Which still is kind of crazy because she is still a kidnapping victim. You know, it's, I, mm-hmm. certainly it's that's going to be complicated. It's Darcy. Yeah. So by the end of the month of April of 1974, Donald DeFreeze had decided that there was too much heat from the FBI for the SLA to remain in their San Francisco safe house. General Sin Q said, pack it all up. We're leaving town. We are relocating to Los Angeles where it would turn out that there would be much more heat than DeFreeze and the rest of the SLA had ever anticipated. Feel free to consider that a spoiler for next week, because it is. Of the nine marching members of the SLA who decamped from San Francisco on May the 8th, 1974, only Patricia Hurst, sorry, Tanya, and two others would still be alive in 10 days' time. We will tell you all about what happened in the Compton area of Los Angeles on May the 16th and 17th of 1974 and much, much more next week when we conclude this two-part series. Well, I am on pins and needles. I got to find out how this ends. So what documentary can we watch in the meantime? There's a six-part series that is uh, from CNN. You can watch that on YouTube. It's called... 
the radicalization of Patty Hearst, something like that. You can find it easily. If you Katie, Google, you've watched yeah, it. Yeah, if you Google Patty Hearst CNN, yeah. if you have a fire stick or something, you can search it there. It'll pop up for It's you. like nine bucks to watch all six episodes, and it's very, very well done yeah. CNN. So, you know, they, the production quality is there. They interview a lot of the people who are pertinent to this story. And we can also read American Heiress. That's right, by Jeffrey Tubin. And you can read... Uh, Patty Hearst's book from 1982 titled Every Secret Thing. This is her version of what happened. And I read both just to kind of get mm-hmm. both sides of the story. Okay. All right. Well, I, I want to pick your brain on what your take is. I want to pick your brain two. on what your take is. Okay. After we finish this. All right. And we Sounds will do that good. next week. Are we done? Are we ready? We're done. Good night, everybody. <laughs>